Welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture. Where's my Gershwin, Andy? Oh, well, I'm sorry, Rob. This is Andy Bromberger from Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. And Rob, yes, you're right. Rhapsody in Blue wasn't on this morning. I decided that as we were looking at something called Harmony, that we should actually look at this or listen to this fabulous piece of music. Don't worry. Rhapsody in Blue will come back at the end and will be around for the next podcast. But I thought that this beautiful Gloria by Australian composer Felix um, Reibel would be fabulous to listen to from he's the guy um, one of the guys in the cat empire ah rob's going oh yes yes i love her big fan of the cat empire seen them in concert i gotta say i love this i did love it i did miss rhapsody but i love this it is beautiful and i just thought you know be a little bit out there throw it up a little bit today because we are talking about a bit of music which makes music sound different, makes um, the melodic line, the rhythmic line sound totally different. It's the bit of music that um, is mysterious, that brings it together, that creates um, a luscious, um, intoxicating sound. And if we're talking about lush and intoxicating, we need to talk about cakes. Absolutely, and I am smelling something in the... uh and culture studios that you need to tell me what it is. Yes, this morning I got up very early and I made this beautiful, well, it is a beautiful cake. It is chocolate and coffee. I mean, I don't drink coffee. Now, I know that's bizarre because I have a business called Coffee Cake and Culture. But when you stick chocolate with it, when it becomes a mocha cake, this is the most luscious, gorgeous chocolate cake which is made in one pot it's fantastic and then you put um, a thick cream on top of that and then caramelized nuts or a toffee with coffee in it on top of that and oh my lord you have something that is luscious and gorgeous just like superb harmony Andy, I am salivating, but, you know, that will be the little reward at the end of the podcast. But as everyone knows, all the details of the recipes are in the podcast notes on the website. Today, as I said, Rob, we're going to look at this thing called harmony. But if we look at what we've already talked about, we've talked about beautiful melodies. We've talked about the complexity of rhythm. But today we are looking into the mysterious element of music, something, as I said, called harmony. Harmony is the element of music which takes the previous two ideas and makes them luscious, enticing, and emotionally charged. How about that for an introduction? I'm very excited. (laughs) Harmony is the, the bit of music that adds, as I said, to the melody or the rhythm. So if you're sitting at the piano or you've got a guitar in your hand and you are accompanying yourself as you sing, that's harmony. Have a listen to some James Taylor. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans we made put an end to you. I walked out on the morning and I wrote down the song. I just can't remember who to send it to. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen so sunny what days James Taylor is doing with his guitar there is 
the harmony is adding support, it's adding depth, it's adding richness to the melody. It's taking, I mean, he could sing it beautifully, but the guitar just adds that mysterious, as I keep on saying, luscious addition to that beautiful music and melody and his beautiful voice. And so that is the very basis of what this thing called harmony is. Now, if we look at harmony, harmony is in two sections, I suppose. We have um, what we call consonant harmonies, which are stable and restful and sound consonant, sound positive. And then we have others that are unstable and tense, and we call them dissonances. So they're the two aspects of harmony. And what composers do is they use both consonances and dissonances to enhance the melody that they have written. Let's have another listen to a piece of music by a 20th century French composer, Poulenc. See, Andy, when I hear that, that's mm. when I think harmony, that's what I think about choirs mm. and, you know, bass and different different types of people. Tell me more about this piece. Okay, so what we're hearing is, yes, so this is a choral piece of music and um, so you are hearing the harmony with all the, the, the voices, but that's only one aspect of harmony. Harmony is Anything that has a chord underneath it, basically, anything that is being accompanied, that is harmony. It's a much, much more diverse concept than just a choral piece of music. And if we look at what is harmony, like what's the word mean? It, the word harmony comes from the Greek harmonia, which means joint, agreement, concord, or from the verb harmosa, which means fit together or to join. And that's what we're doing here in music. We are joining together for agreement to make music sound more beautiful. So it really makes sense that we have this word harmony. And in music, harmony is two or more notes coming together for pleasant effect. And the concept of pleasant effect is really important because when harmony first started to come into music, it was there to elevate the melody, to make the melody more beautiful and was used in the church initially to make it closer to God. If you had a more beautiful melody, something that was more gorgeous, it was going to be spiritually better and higher to God. So if we have two or more notes playing together, we call them a chord. Let me play you a chord. I feel closer to God now. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all it takes? <laughs> all, it, all it takes. No, okay, so it's two or more notes. Playing, playing together, together. Yeah. that's right. And when we look at music, we talk about music as being either vertical or horizontal. And I know this is tricky in a podcast, but if you think about it, the melody is horizontal. Mm-hmm. 
But if we then have something that has chords, it's vertical, it's up and down. So you can hear with that, that that sounds vertical compared to the pop goes the weasel, which was a horizontal sound. When we look at harmony, harmony is the late bloomer in the musical world. So melody has been around forever. Rhythm has been around forever. But harmony only came about in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance period. It was only after we had musical notation at the end of the first millennium, which we'll talk about in another podcast, that we had the ability to write more than one line of music because you have to have the music being able to be written to know where you're going. It's essentially like the varnish. It's the final thing that turns something Mm. from a melody and then just brings it to the next level. Ah, I like that. Yes, I've never, I've never thought of harmony as varnish. But, uh, but yes, you're right. It takes, it takes that single thing that is beautiful and elevates it, adorns it. So if we want to talk about it that way, it adorns it. It makes it even more beautiful. So you can have a melody without harmony, but the harmonic element creates something much, much more lush, much more beautiful. So melody and rhythm can live apart from harmony. But fundamentally, harmony cannot live without melody and rhythm. So it's the ingredients in music that makes it sophisticated, that makes it seductive, that takes it to a higher level. And as I said, that's literally why it was invented. It was invented to take the Gregorian chant, the, the melody of, in the, of the church, and to take it to a higher level. So let's have a listen now to a bit of a Gregorian chant. Now, even when you listen to a Gregorian chant and there are people singing it with higher or lower voices, they're still singing the same line. It's called unison. So it might be a higher voice, a middle voice, and a lower voice. And although we have different voices, they're still singing that same melody. start straight away. It was constructed over hundreds of years to give composers time to to work out how to best manipulate us, the listener, uh, how to um, use chords to charge our emotion, whichever way they wanted to charge our emotion. It's like tricks. It's like rules of language. Writers do the same thing. They use specific words and the specific rhythms of words to make you feel a certain way. It's exactly the same as what a composer does. As I said, this happened over hundreds of years 
And the way it started was we had that single line of music and then there would be a drone underneath it, a single note, a single tone being played or sung underneath it. And then the melody would bob around on top of that. Let's have a listen. So, Andy, that's exactly what you were saying, was that stable note and then, you know, the melody over the top of it. Who were we listening to? We listened to a wonderful composer by the name of Hildegard von Bingen, and she was a an abbess. She was a medical practitioner as well as this incredible composer. Fantastic, amazing composer. If you don't know her, listen. She's incredible. And you can hear, as you said, you can hear the drone underneath and then the melody sort of wafting over the top. But it's not just in vocal music that we have that. Think of a bagpipe. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to think of. That, 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 that actually reminded me of that. So you've got that, I don't know what they call it. The, the, the squeeze, drone. The, the drone. drone of the... Now, play some. So Andy, thank you for taking me to the Scottish Highlands. But yes, I do get it. That, you know, the the underdrone of the, right. of the bagpipe. Once we had musical notation, which was invented at the end of the first millennium by a monk called Guido, and we will talk about Guido more later because he is also one of those people that we really need to talk about. Music started to develop where you could have a moving drone. And that developed into a second line. So instead of the drone just being a constant, it starts to move. And then it starts to work in relationship with the melody. The church was all powerful at this time. And the church made a edict of what intervals could be used between these two melodies. Now, when you think of interval, think of the distance, the space between one note and another note. And the church said you could only use what we call octaves, fourths, and fifths. Let me play them for you. That's an octave. That's a fourth. And that's the fifth. So if we listen to this Kyrie, 
Now you'll be able to hear the fact that there is more than one part. There is the major vocal part, but there is an accompaniment underneath, which is using those fourths, those fifths, and those octaves. I can hear see it in your face as, I, as I'm looking at you. Yes, this it's like the, the light bulb moments are going off. So if we think about the Middle Ages, we move to this thing called chord, a chord, and a chord can be two or more pitches playing together, the notes playing together. And even in the Middle Ages, the church still had this stranglehold on fourths, fifths and octaves. Until we come to this amazing Englishman by the name of John Dunstable. And I keep on saying that there are certain people in musical history that have sort of disappeared into the the depths of music who should be so important in our lives. And just as we talk about Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, we should be talking about John Dunstable because if it wasn't for John Dunstable, we wouldn't have Mozart, Bach, Beethoven or anyone else. So what did John Dunstable do? John Dunstable took, he was a composer, his dates are 1390 to 1453. And he was writing music that had these fourth, fifths and octaves. But the music, as you could hear in that last example, is quite open. It's not rich and chocolatey. It's got sort of this austere sort of feel to it, sort of a very um, solemn religious religiosity to it. And what he wanted to do was make music that had warmth and that had depth. Now, if you've got intervals of a fourth, a fifth, and an octave, we call them perfect intervals, and they cannot give you that warmth. What you need to have that warmth are things called thirds and sixths. Now, what is a third and a sixth? This is where, Rob, when we start to get a little bit complicated. A third is literally three notes above the bottom note and a sixth is literally six notes above the bottom note so what's so complicated about that what's complicated is that we need to go back in time about two and a half thousand years to the time of pythagoras okay you're, you're, you're pulling me back to year 10 maths oh, continue. exactly year 10 probably even earlier than year 10 maths we know pythagoras has been the guy and the triangles we associate pythagoras with triangles but not only was he a triangle guy he was also a musical guy And we'll talk about this again more in another podcast. But what he he discovered was the relationship with music. 
he discovered that if you take a piece of metal and you halve that piece of metal, you have a perfect interval. You have that large piece of metal and you ping that last large piece of metal and then you ping something that is exactly half. You have a ratio of two to one. And if you take that large piece of metal again and you divide it into two to three, you have a fifth. And if you take that piece of metal again and you divide it into three to four, you have a fourth. And if you are an architect or or a painter, um, you know that there there are perfect ratios. And the perfect ratios are um, two to one, two to three, and three to four. So just as we have these perfect ratios in the artistic world, we have these ratios in the musical world too, where we have a perfect octave, a perfect fourth, and a perfect fifth. And that's the reason why the church only allowed them, because they were perfect. Pythagoras did one other really interesting thing. He took that piece of metal and he divided it by two thirds, two to three, and then divided and divided and divided and divided and divided it. And he divided it 12 times. And what he discovered that from that first piece of metal, when you hear that piece of metal coming back again, an octave above, you have 12 cuts, which is why we have 12 notes in our octave. And we will talk about that another time as well. Do you want me to play those 12 notes for you? Sure. Okay. So here we have the octave. And here are the 12 notes. One, two, three, four. Going back to that note again. So you're basically playing all the white and the black notes. I am playing. We call it a chromatic scale. So Dunstable decided the beginning of the 1400s, that he wanted to break the rules of the church and not just write music that had fourth, fifths and octaves, but he wanted to add these thirds and sixths. Now, why these thirds and sixths were scary, the fourth and the fifth, they were perfect intervals. But as I said, he broke up, Pythagoras broke up this this bar into 12 bits. The first couple of intervals, the first couple of fifths were perfect. But the more he broke up this piece of metal, the less perfect the intervals became. If I'm going to use a cooking analogy, if you are making a cake, you have the recipe. If you are making two cakes from that one recipe, you don't double the ingredients. Because if you double the ingredients, it's not going to work. There's actually a formula that you have to use to know how to double the the recipe without mucking up your cakes. So it's exactly the same sort of thing here. The more he divided this piece of metal, the more irregular the intervals became. So if you are then going to add a third or a sixth to a perfect harmony, it's going to be in the wrong place because it's not going to be equal distance to those other notes. And instead of it being a beautiful sound, it's now going to be a clash of sounds, not a dissonance, but a clash of sounds. So what Dunstable had to do is he had to teach his singers how to move the notes when they sung a third or a sixth, so it would fit nicely between the two outer voices. Gotcha. Okay, so I'm going to play you a one and a five. And then I'm going to play you that three in the middle, the third. Okay. 
So if you listen to that, that's just the one and five. It's quite, it sounds quite open. But stick the three in between, you suddenly have rich harmony. I get it. I get it. It's, it, it's, it's, it's like we're... I feel like we're constructing something. It's quite interesting. Like you can see the elements and now you're putting pieces together and that third note definitely made a difference. Huge difference. Let's listen to this really important piece that Dunstable wrote. Um, he wrote this as a, a mass of um, a mass for when his boss, who just happened to be King Henry IV, he defeated the French in Agincourt and he came back and Dunstable wrote this mass of thanksgiving using these thirds and sixths, which, as I said, were totally forbidden. So it's just amazing that King Henry V was open enough to modern ideas to actually accept this thing that was actually forbidden by the church. So I love your campaign of bringing Dunstable to the to the mainstream, <laughs> but look, it's a celebration as well. It is such a celebration, and what was really like, you know, music is full of um, twists of fate, both posit- positively and negatively. And here we have one that is also positive because Dunstable was then given to the Duke of Bedford, who happened to be King Henry's brother. And he sent the Duke of Bedford over to this new conquered land with his court musician, Dunstable, who then spread this new idea of this, this these thirds and sixths throughout the whole of Europe. And they spread like wildfire. So if Dunstable has stuck in, in England, who knows if and when this concept of this third and sixth would have actually turned up in, in Europe. But as time went on, this one, three, and five chord that Dunstable sort of almost invented became known as a triad. And a triad is the the fundamentals of 
modern harmony. And when I say modern harmony, I mean everything from the Baroque period on. We call the bottom note the the root note, and it's the most important note in harmony. So if we're talking about C major, say, and a C major chord, C is the root note, followed by G, which is the fifth, and then E, which is that middle third. And when we move into the Baroque period, harmony changes to to what we call major and minor. And in the Baroque period, harmony is based on what we call major chords and minor chords. This is what a major chord sounds like. And this is what a minor chord sounds like. And the only difference between a major chord and a minor chord is that middle note, that third. In a major chord, And in a minor chord, it moves down one semitone. And the major chord has a positive, stable sort of sound to it, while the minor is much more unstable and less secure than the major. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think we spoke about this in our melody podcast Mm. because yeah i mean you you get the sadness of the minor chord and the openness and the positiveness of the major chord that's exactly right and what is great is that composers have written music using all major chords and all minor chords i bet you didn't think rob that we were going to hear jerry lee lewis in a classical music podcast but we're going to listen to a little bit of great balls of fire And every chord, every harmonic chord in this piece of music is major. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. So Andy, yes, we're just dancing in Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, that was a, a lot of fun. And obviously, yeah, I can, I can hear what you're saying. All all chords, majors happening. No minors in there? No minors in there. So now we're going to listen to the opposite. A little bit of Foray, another French composer, his Pavan, which only uses minor chords. sort of bashing underneath a melody but it doesn't have to be like that if we go back to the James Taylor right at the beginning he wasn't strumming the guitar he was actually plucking the strings a lot of the time and that's called implied where you can have a single line of music so not like the James Taylor but a single line of music where both the melody 
and the harmonies are being played although there's no strumming there's no chord going on and we call that implied where we break the chord up into its individual notes rather than plonking down a chord so if we listen to Bach Bach's cello suites what he's doing is you've got a melody and harmony but the harmony are these broken chords that happen around the melody that's being played As musicians and composers started to work out this concept of harmony, they realized that there were some harmonic progressions. Now, harmonic progression is literally the progression of the harmonies that work better together. It's a bit like, sorry, using a food analogy again, like foods that really work fantastically together. Strawberries and chocolate, quince and cheese. I don't know, Rob, if you've probably got... Uh, There's... We'll bring an Elvis example, which is the old peanut butter and jelly. Oh, my favourite. Absolutely perfect example. And these all work beautifully together. And there are chord progressions that work equally as beautifully together. The most important one is what we call 151, where we go, go from chord one to the fifth chord of chord one, back to chord one. So again, if we're talking about C major, we talk about C chord followed by a G chord, followed by a C chord again. Sounds like my guitar playing Andy. The G and the C chords are the ones that I know. <laughs> and they are very important. It's like the end. It gives the finality. There's almost almost every piece of music you've ever listened to finishes with 5-1 at the end in some sort of combination. It gives us this ending. And between about 1650 to 1850, composers loved traveling through 1-5-1. Let's listen to the end of the first movement of Beethoven 5 and just listen to what he does here. So you can hear, Rob, that that just goes 5-1, 5-1, 5-1, 5-1, 5-1, 5-1, 5-1, 5-1. Uh, it's, it's, you, can, you can hear it, and like, yeah, it, 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 it builds and it ends, but it's it's what you're expecting. If you if that exactly, makes sense. no, absolutely, because you can't. If I left you up the five, you would need to play the one to finish it off. It is you couldn't leave it five. Yeah, no, you, no, no one likes being left without their one. No, you need to have your one. <laughs> so composers then realise that. 5-1 is great, but if you stick a 4 before the 5, so 1-4-5-1, you expand that even further. And again, if you notice that I'm using these, these, um, these perfect chords, just like we were talking about with these intervals. So I'm now going to play you 1-4-5-1. 
And Rob, with your guitar playing, if you could stick one more chord in there, your four chord, you could play pretty much any pop song written. Almost every pop song written only uses three or four chords. The main ones being one, four, five. And in fact, there's a group called the Axis of Awesome. I don't know if you know them, but they have written this piece of music, um, which is called the four chord. And they just stick an extra chord in there, which is like an embellishment of chord four. And then they play almost every pop song you can possibly imagine and every folk song you can possibly imagine using just those four chords. Let's have a listen. Recognize this? Yeah, yeah that's Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And the cast of Glee. Yeah, there's a few more songs with the same chords. Check it out. My life is brilliant. My love is pure I saw an angel Of that I'm sure People killing People dying Children hurt and you hear them crying Can you practice what you preach Won't you turn the other cheek Forever young I wanna be Forever young I won't hesitate No more No more I'm your lipstick stains On the front lobe of my left side brains I knew I wouldn't forget you if I could Then I would I'd go wherever you will Can you feel the I feel like I don't even need to listen to Spotify again after listening to that <laughs> You don't need to, no you're absolutely right We've got the basis now. We know that chords are made up of, of one, three, five on the whole, that we have major and minor chords and that this is all harmony, which makes music sound better. But if you remember, Rob, right at the beginning, I said that harmony was invented to create pleasant effect. So music that sounds nice. But almost straight away, composers tried to find ways of having subtle dissonances in their music because if you play music that is all consonant that is all happy it sort of loses some of the impact but in a time of the baroque period composers were reticent to write music that was too discordant too flashy to the ears so what they did was they did it subtly through things that we call passing notes and suspensions and auxiliary notes so what that means is they will play a nice chord and then another nice chord. But in between those two nice chords, there might be a note that moves from one to the other. And in between, we have a dissonance. Let me play that for you. Now that sounds totally nice. But if I stop at the clash and play that clashy chord, you're going to hear how clashy it is. So this chord here is horrible, but because it's going moving down, you don't actually hear the clash.
I like that there's a, you know, the composers are talking to the history and it's a bit of disruption. You said dissonance before. So it's just a a bit of a a subtle change in the world. Exactly. It just gives you that little bit of spice, giving you a little bit of excitement in your music. Now, we probably don't hear all of these auxiliary notes and, and passing notes because what has happened over time is that as music has become more and more and more and more dissonant, all of these subtle dissonances have become almost like white bread. We don't actually hear them. But in Bach's time, these dissonances would have been really quite exciting to people. So when we listen to this bit of Bach now, if you can, have a listen and to, to all the little notes, all the little what we could call quavers that move from one consonant chord to another, giving us a little bit of spice and excitement in that moving. to have a look at another one of these little excitements that composers use, something called suspension. Now a suspension is where you have a chord followed by another chord, but one of the notes from the old chord hangs over into the new chord causing a clash and then is resolved. Let's have a listen. that again we have positive which is a clap because it's got that note there which then resolves to something that sounds good past coming through to the future and you're resolving the past but this is sounding more like psychotherapy (laughs) oh that's what all us musicians are (laughs) psychotherapists now let's listen to a piece of music by a guy by the name of lottie lottie lived from 
what's really interesting about music is that our ears get used to new sounds very, very quickly. You know, you might listen to a piece of music on the radio and you think it's absolutely fabulous. And after the second or third time, you go, oh, that's so boring. Or you do the opposite. You listen to something and go, oh, I don't like that. But after the third or fourth time, you go, wow, isn't that fabulous? What we find is that our ears get used to things very, very quickly. And if a composer is continuously trying to give us more emotion or more feeling or more whatever in their music, and our ears are so used to what happened yesterday, they are continuously having to invent new ways of giving us the same effect as it would have been previously because our ears are now ready for it. Again, if we're going to use another silly analogy, I always think it's like, I'm sure, Rob, you understand this analogy completely. In the beginning of a summer season, you go into the shops and burnt oranges everywhere. And you go, I'm never going to wear burnt orange. It's horrible. And by the end of the season, you realize you've got a T-shirt that's burnt orange and you've just bought a scatter cushion that's burnt orange. And burnt orange is your favorite color. In the 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 ability to see burnt orange all the time has suddenly changed you from being a burnt orange hater to a burnt orange lover. It's so nice that you picked up what I'm wearing today, <laughs> and I, I I I I get that, and it it is you know you, I I love that analogy you used about you know some of the songs that you go that that sort of grates initially, the next thing you know you get it kind of thing. So what composers had to continuously try and do is find ways of adding more spice to their music. And one of the things that they started to do was add sevenths. Now, confusing. We have already confused you with thirds and sixths, but they are creating nice chords. What a seventh does is it creates a clash, but also a perfect way of resolution. I'm going to play for you something again. So if I play you just a chord five... And I chord, play you a chord 5 to chord 1. And I'll show you a 1 5 1. But if on that 5, I add a 7th note, if I was just to leave you there, you're not going to be very happy. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm hanging. I'm hanging. <laughs> Do you want this? I need satisfaction. <laughs> so the, the seventh note gives the music a whole lot of pull. But if we work out the actual fundamentals of a, fifth, of a seventh chord, it's full of dissonances. We have... The major scale, major chord, which sounds fantastic, but the seventh added causes two big dissonances. We have this, the first and the fourth note, and it causes this big dissonance. And that's called a triad. In the classical period, going up through into jazz, into R&B, um, sevenths were the the durago you have to have your music full of sevenths now i found this hysterical little song just play a little bit of it it's called the soul um salty song and it's all it uses solfege do re mi fa so to 
explain the whole concept of sevenths. This is a one chord and a five in first inversion, then a six, a passing one, six, four, then four. But this song might get boring, and you'd probably start ignoring me if I tried naming every single chord. But there's one chord that's terrific, and its function is specific, and it hangs around in cadences for fun. With if I explain some of those terminologies, a cadence is that last bit at the end, the amen or the end at the end, that's what a cadence is. Oh, and the dominant seventh is what I was playing for you when I was playing the, that chord before the one chord. That's that dominant seventh because it's the dominant note, the fifth note of the chord. So when I found that, Rob, I thought that was hysterical. It sums up the whole gorgeous concept of 51571 perfectly. But we need to now move to something that changed, again, the whole concept of music, and that is our friend Richard Wagner. Richard Wagner wrote a piece, an opera, called Tristan and Isolde. He wrote this in 1865. It's about the the love between Tristan and Isolde and the fact that it is unresolved and unconsummated and they couldn't consummate their love, otherwise they would die. Now, this is a five-hour opera, as Wagner does, and it starts with what has been called the Tristan chord. Now, if you Google Tristan chord, you will find pages upon pages upon pages discussing this chord. This is what it sounds like. sound too terrifying does it no and it had was a chord that had been used a lot but it is a very dissonant chord you remember before i that talked to you about the concept of tritones and how tritones are illegal well it's a chord made up of tritones and composers had used it before but what they had done is that they had resolved it they had moved it from the dissonance to a consonant, like we heard all the way back in Bach, so that we it was it felt fine, we felt resolved with it. But what Wagner does in Tristan and Isolde is just as their relationship can't be consummated until until death, this chord can't be resolved until their death. So we hear this chord throughout the whole five hours of this opera until their death at the end where they consummate their love and we hear the resolution of that chord. And that is what is so remarkable about this chord. Let's have a listen to a little bit of it. So it's five hours and it only gets consummated at the end. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And it is the most brilliant opera. And you do hear this Tristan chord coming through the whole time. It's, it's, it's amazing. If we now move into the 20th century, composers started to think differently about harmony. We've talked about this in both of the other podcasts, that in, in the 20th century, composers started thinking about melody differently and they started thinking about rhythm differently and they started thinking about harmony differently as well. And you have composers like Schoenberg who 
rewrote the whole musical language. He got rid of major and minor completely. And as a result of getting rid of major and minor, you have to get rid of the harmony the way we know it because if the whole harmonic system is based on major and minor and you're now throwing major and minor out the window, so your harmonic progressions and the way you view harmony is totally different. Let's have a little bit of a listen. So Schoenberg once again opened up the door for composers to use harmony in very different ways and to fiddle around with the concept of chords. They would add extra notes to chords. They would, what we call, invert them, stick them on their heads, turn them upside down, a whole bunch of different ways to make music, again, sound seductive and sound fantastically exciting because as our ears, as I said, get more and more used to things, composers need to add more and more tricks to their repertoire. And composers in not just the classical world started doing this. If we think of jazz, if we think of early jazz, so let's listen to a little bit of W.C. Handy, early jazz musician, and how he uses harmony and these chords. So compare that, Rob, to some Miles Davis. Finally, Rob, in this amazing world of harmony, which I'm so pleased that you are, I've kept you with. I thought I might lose you, lose you somewhere. No, no, no. Like, like uh, Tristan, I do need completion. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. I will complete you with a quote from Frank Zappa. Again, I didn't think you you didn't think you're going to have Frank Zappa in a music class, but he said the creation and destruction of harmonic and statistical tensions is essential to the maintenance of compositional drama. Any composition or improvisation which remains constant and regular throughout is, for me, equivalent to watching a movie with only good guys in it or eating cottage cheese. And I think that is a perfect way of finishing a podcast on harmony. Andy, I've really enjoyed today and I hope everyone listening has been enjoying it. I'm, I feel like I'm the ears of the audience and your explanations and examples are phenomenal. If you're enjoying this podcast, you've got to rate, review it, go to Apple Podcasts, let your friends know about it because we've made a few and we want to make more and we want more people to listen. Please, yes. And I hope you are all enjoying it. Have a look at my on my website, coffeecakeandculture.com.au. But have a look at the recipes and pictures and all those sorts of things that are there about Coffee, Cake and Culture and the podcast. And next time, stay tuned for a look at musical notation, how musical notation, the actual writing of music came about. A fascinating story, Rob.
Uh, I can't wait, but first let's have some cake. Oh, I think we need some. Until next time. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by etales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au. Does your company or organisation or even yourself need a podcast? Contact Rob at etales.com.au.